This morning we'll read from God's Word in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2 and through verse 13. I guess it was four weeks ago that together we considered Jesus' baptism from the Gospel of Mark. As the heavens were opened, the voice of the Lord spoke, and the Spirit descended upon Christ. We times together we'll be looking at some of the, the major milestones of Jesus and his identity as it is revealed for us in the various Gospels in our New Testament. So today, we have another such scene. Uh, this time, uh, the skies are not opened and the glory of the Lord descends. This time, it is right there before the disciples as Jesus is transfigured. So follow along with me as we read from Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, and reading through verse 13. I'm going to read through verse 13. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how, it is, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. May we pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that just as these three disciples saw the glory of Christ revealed to them, that we too, from this page of Scripture, might see the glory of our Savior, that we may behold him in his beauty and worship and have lives transformed by the fact that he is God. His glory fills all the heavens. So we pray this in his name. Amen. We have before us, don't we, perhaps one of the most amazing events in all of human history. As Jesus climbed this mountain with his three fishermen friends, he took those who spent their days on one of the lowest points on earth, the Sea of Galilee, tending nets, catching fish, basically stinking, and going up to the highest mountain in that area, to see Jesus in all his glory, as, as Mark tells it, so white in glory that no laundromat of that day could have, have created such a scene. Uh, truly, Paul, or sorry, Peter, James, and John were on holy ground as they saw this sight. But for us, the question is, what does this mean for us? Is this just merely some sort of historical anomaly, some historical oddity? 
Well, I titled my sermon text, sermon this morning, Transfigured and Transformed, for this very reason, that because Jesus was transfigured, we can be transformed. And in fact, if Jesus was transfigured, we must be transformed by the reality that is present, reality that was revealed as the veil was torn back, and not merely Peter, James, and John, but we ourselves see for ourselves the glory of our Lord. We'll consider this by three C's this morning. We'll first consider the clothes of Jesus, the clothes of Jesus in these first verses, and we'll see the company around Jesus, these two sets of three, Peter, James, and John, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. And then we'll consider, thirdly, the command about Jesus that cries out from the heavens, the very voice of God, the clothes of Jesus, the company around Jesus, and the command about Jesus. But we begin in verse 2 with considering the clothes of Jesus. Mark begins our text by telling us this took place after six days. We wonder after six days, after what? Actually, Mark chapter 8, until you got to the transfiguration, Mark chapter 8 was the highest point of the gospel so far. Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Or who do the people say that I am? And Jesus made that great uh, announcement of his identity through the mouth of Peter. As Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, that is right. And on that rock of that confession, I'll build my church. And he turns right around and says, in fact, because I am Christ, I will suffer and die. And now Peter's upset and Jesus rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan. And if that weren't enough, then he turns to his disciples and says, actually, you're going to have a cross of yourselves too. So after these, these great events of Jesus' identity being confessed by Peter, his death and resurrection being predicted, and the, and the likewise suffering of his disciples, after six days, he takes them to this mountain to be transfigured. The text doesn't tell us what mountain. Scholars debate, some say Mount Tabor, which was one in Israel. But, but judging by the geography of the surrounding chapters, this was probably Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was 9,000 feet tall. It was covered in snow. They surely didn't climb quite that high. But it rises dramatically over the region of Caesarea Philippi. That's where chapter 8 tells us Jesus asked the disciples who he was. And interestingly, it's actually east of the Jordan River. It was not in Israel proper. But that may seem strange to us until we remember that Elijah, when he was fleeing from Baal worship, fleeing from Ahab, fleeing from Jezebel, went east of the Jordan. And remember Moses. Where, where did Moses end his life? Where, where was the closest he ever got to the promised land? was east of the Jordan. Jesus acclaims his, his mantle of all the glory of kingship, but on a mountain that is not really in Israel, but one that is outside of Israel, showing his kingship over the entire earth. And there that he is, on that mountain, Mark tells us he is transfigured. Actually, as I thought about this, I realized that's not a word we use every day. You even know what it means to be transfigured. And that's actually a very simple word. All it means is to have your appearance changed. All, that's all it means to be transfigured, to have one's appearance, his outward appearance changed. But it's not changed in just any way, is it, when Jesus is transfigured? The text tells us how, in verse 3, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. In other words, this was a supernatural 
change. It's not like the laundromat added too much Clorox that week to Jesus' clothes, and he was a little extra white. No, what, what, my, it's almost like Mark is, is struggling. Try to come up with the words to describe this. I mean, how did he describe the intense glory of God himself? Scholars think Mark got his information as he wrote his gospel from Peter, which makes sense. And of course, Peter was there, and Peter's kind of stammering around. The text tells us that they didn't know what to think, didn't know what to say. All he could come up with was like, yeah, it's like you dumped a gallon of Clorox in the washing machine, and it was wider, but even wider than that. Multiply that times 100, it's like Peter is saying. The glory of God in Christ was clear for all to see. Now, why do I say glory? The text doesn't say anything about glory. All it says is that it was very white. But in Scripture, whiteness, nothing to do with you know, race or anything like that, whiteness has to do with, with splendor, with brightness, and with glory. Do you recall in Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel sees one like the, the Ancient of Days, throned on high, and Daniel tells us that his clothing was as white as snow. Notice even Daniel had to, re- had to resort to a metaphor. As white as snow, he couldn't think of any other way to describe the glory of God himself seated on high. And at the other end of Scripture, at the end of Scripture, Revelation, when John has a vision of Jesus, the risen glorious Christ, he's brilliant. Brilliant white hair, it tells us, and a radiant glowing face. Think about the background of this text. Six days ago, what's going on? He's been, Jesus has been confessed as Christ. He's said that he will rise from the dead. He says, actually, at the end of chapter 8, that he will come again with, a, with the glory of his angels, for the coming of his kingdom. And now those words are confirmed as the disciples see Jesus in his glory. After all, anyone can, can claim, yeah, I'm going to rise from the dead one day. Anyone can claim, yeah, I'll come back one day with angels. And that would sound preposterous, unless what? Unless you could back it up. Unless you could say, I'm the sort of person who can say these sorts of things, and let me show you by revealing to you my glory. This glory, of course, can only have one source. When you think of the transfiguration, don't think of Jesus adding something. It's not like he didn't have glory before. Now I'm going I'm I'm to shine a light on me and add some brightness to me. No, it's not an adding. It's a removal of the veil. It's a showing that the, the source of his glory must be from God himself. This is, this is a, truly a supernatural event. God's the kind of person who can say, I'll rise again from the dead, isn't he? God is the sort of person, the only person who can say, yes, I will come again with my angels ushering in the kingdom, as he says at the end of chapter 8. The disciples needed this confirmation. They needed to be transformed by the revelation of the glory of Christ. Remember what I said that Jesus added to his own prediction of suffering? What did Jesus turn around to the disciples after he said that he would suffer and die he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Jesus says, y'all think you are my disciples, but to really be my disciple, you have to pick up your cross. You have to drag behind you this method of execution. You have to share with me in the deepest of suffering. 
This is what it's going to be to be my disciple. And again, if a, if a mere man came up to you and said, to follow me, you're going to have to do this. It would be the rational thing to say, no thanks. I'm done with you. I'll go back to fishing full time. Thank you very much. But when the man who makes that claim on you shows himself to be one who has the very glory of God in his whiteness, and you say, aha, this is someone worth following, no matter what. No matter if he tells me I've got to pick up my cross, so I have to become like a, a condemned criminal, taking, taking my cross to the place of, of worldly execution, as it were. Whoever would save his life, Jesus says, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Jesus promised them, basically, if you want to give your life for the gospel, you will give your life for the gospel. Friends, we too need this encouragement, don't we? We too need to see Christ in his glory because we too have been given this charge. We too have had, if you were, uh, the cross of suffering laid upon us. What does Paul tell us in his writings? That if you want to share the glory of Christ that you see here, what must you share first? His suffering. In fact, Peter tells us in 1 Peter that to be like Christ is to suffer. To be made like Christ is to suffer. To walk through this life as those who the world sometimes merely misunderstands, sometimes whom the world maligns and persecutes, and for many disciples takes away the very things of this world, the things that Jesus tells his disciples previously that you're going to have to give up. He says, what good is it if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? The cost-benefit analysis, as it were, of being a Christian doesn't make sense unless you have that perspective that you're giving anything up that this world wants you to keep in exchange for the glory of Christ. And the only way you, you, the only way you, can, you can understand that, that benefit of Christ is if you see him in his glory. If you, if you get a, a foreshadowing of a foretaste of what he will be like, as he says, when he returns with his angels. And you say, yeah, that is a man, but that is a God-man worth anything, worth everything, worth my entire life, worth my following after him, my love, my obedience, my honor. All that I have in this life is nothing compared to the one who shines forth in all his glory, for he is truly God. That's why the, the clothing of, of Jesus in one sense is incidental, but in the other sense is representative of all that he is in this text. But as we move on, we, have, we must do, we also see the company around Jesus. We have these dueling trios, if you will. We have Peter, James, and John on the one hand. We have Jesus, Elijah, and Moses on the other hand. Joined with the latter two in verse 4, text tells us, and in fact, verse 6 tells us that Peter is terrified. You can imagine as he sees his presence, as he sees these men who uh, the text doesn't uh, tell us that Jesus tells them who they are, but it's clear that they figure out who they are. Perhaps Jesus did tell them in a way that is not recorded for us. And again, he's grasping for words to say, uh, Mark tells us, suggests in verse 5, let's build some booths. (laughs) Let's build some tents so that y'all can stay here for a while. Now, he's not trying to be funny, but it's okay to laugh. I mean, what does Jesus need a tent for? Well, what is what Elijah and Moses, they made their way all the way to Mount Hermon from, you know, from the afterlife, as it were, and all 
uh, Peter can come up with is, uh, let, let's build you a hut. Let's build you a tent. <laughs> let's build you uh, a booth. And we understand why. He wants to preserve this moment. He wants them to have a place to lodge for, for as long as this glorious uh, instance uh, can continue. He's all for it continuing. But again, all, all these things that we talked about are swirling through his mind. The, the confession that he made that Jesus was the Christ. And then two minutes later, Jesus is comparing him to Satan and telling him to get behind him. Uh, these great uh, prediction, this great uh, promise in chapter 9 verse 1 that there are some stating here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. So for Perhaps Peter has that promise uh, rattling around in his brain. He thinks, yeah, this is it. The kingdom of God has come in all its power, and this is it. Uh, Jesus will, will institute his kingdom right now. Let's get things going. He's ready for that program to begin. Actually, some scholars kind of fall into that trap as well. And they read this, and they, they read Jesus' prediction that some standing there will not taste death until Christ returns in his glory. They think all that... Jesus is referring to is the transfiguration. The events recorded immediately after that promise there in chapter 9, verse 1. We actually have hints in this text that the fulfillment is not quite yet. That there is even more glory to come. Even greater representation of the kingdom of our God to come. Look at verse 9. As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus charges them to tell tell no one about what they have seen until... The Son of Man has risen from the dead. In other words, there is still more to come. As glorious as this is, as as awe-inspiring as this is, as as jaw-dropping as this event is, Jesus says, actually, there is more to come when I am raised from the dead. None of the disciples get that quite yet. That's why Jesus has to tell them in verse 10 to remain silent. They kept the matter to themselves. He charged them to tell no one. They questioned what this rising from the dead might mean. <laughs> now, Jesus had just told them in chapter 8, verse 31, after three days, he would rise again from the dead. And now six days later, they don't seem to know what he's talking about. They still haven't got it all figured out, but it's clear that there is more glory yet to come. There's another chapter yet to be written. This is, actually, this is, after all, not where the Gospel of Mark ends, is it? But the second prediction, the resurrection, is a clue to when this kingdom will be revealed. Remember, at the, at the end of chapter 8, we saw where I read or referenced how Christ said he would return again with his angels. And that's, that's a reference to a cluster of events, his death, his resurrection, the pouring out of Pentecost, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD as a foretaste of Jesus' final return, yet still in the future. So this is like a, a foretaste of the foretaste, a sign of his glory. As bleached as his clothes looked, as white and as radiant as his appearance was, this is only a foretaste. This is only a little appetizer, a little bite of the full glory of Christ that will be revealed when he is resurrected. He will have a glorious body forever. When we see Christ in all his glory in heaven, it won't be like he's, he's bright one moment and the next he gives it back. No, he reveals that glory in a small way, in a way that when he returns, 
He establishes his kingdom once and for all in a way that even the disciples now can't quite yet comprehend. It will be even more glorious than this. Even more amazing. Even more awesome in the true sense of the word. So that's the first trio, Peter, James, and John. But we also got this other one, don't we? Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Why do they show up? Of all the people in the Old Testament, why do we see Elijah and Moses here to confirm the glory of Christ? Well, we know who Elijah is, don't we? As I mentioned, he was the one who confronted the priest of Baal. He's the one who confronted Ahab and Jezebel. He's the one who, who provided oil to a widow and her son actually raised the son from the dead once the son died. He's the one who was fed by ravens at the brook Kareth. He's the one who heard the Lord, not in the storm, but in the still small voice. But the Old Testament actually also predicted that another Elijah was going to come. Do you remember that? It's at the very, very end of our Old Testament, the way we arrange it, in the very, very end of Malachi. The prophet Malachi says what? I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That day of the Lord that Jesus just predicted. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So that's why the disciples ask, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? Well, guys, it's because the Bible says so. It's because Malachi said that Elijah was going to come again. And Jesus' response in, in verse 12 was pretty simple, isn't it? He says, yeah, that's right. Elijah does come first. He comes first to restore all things. More on that in a minute. In fact, verse 13, Jesus says what? Elijah has come. Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. You may wonder, is Jesus talking about the Elijah that they just saw? Is that the prediction of, of Malachi chapter 4? Kind of yes, kind of, kind of no, mostly, mostly not. Jesus actually answers our question for us in Matthew. In Matthew, he quotes a different part of Malachi, where Malachi says this, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says in verse 14, that Elijah was John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he is the Elijah to come. That's why Jesus says in verse 13 of our passage, they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. They persecuted him. They threw him in prison. Herod, of course, infamously cut off his head and gave it to his stepdaughter. So why Elijah now? If the Old Testament predicted that Elijah would come and that prophecy was fulfilled in John the Baptist and then John the Baptist was killed, perhaps now we understand why Elijah was seen on the mountain. Let me give you at least three reasons. One, he confirmed Jesus' ministry. Remember how even John the Baptist had doubts? He sent his disciples to Jesus' disciples and say, are you sure you're the Messiah? Are you sure you're the one to come? After all, I was supposed to prepare the way for you and now I'm in jail. John said. In fact, John was executed. But when Elijah comes, he confirms Jesus' ministry. Yes, this really is the Christ. Yes, this really is the one predicted of old. Yes, this really is the anointed one of God who will sit on the throne of his father, David. Elijah comes first to restore all things. To not restore them himself, but to show the way. To point the way to show that God is again with his people. That, that, that the 400 years of silence between Malachi and John is gone. That, that 
the prophet has returned, and it is John the Baptist, and the great prophet is now here, Jesus the Christ. So Elijah's presence confirms all that, shows again that it is true. Secondly, Elijah confirms the prophecy of Jesus' suffering. I just just spoke of how Elijah was a sign of John who suffered. But what does Jesus say in verse 12? How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Just as John suffered, Jesus was going to suffer. He had predicted it in chapter 8, and now that prediction is confirmed as the, the new John, as Elijah come back, signifies. But thirdly, the presence of Elijah confirms Jesus' identity. I just quoted from Malachi chapter 3 where Elijah, John the Baptist, would prepare the way for, for whom? Malachi says, John the Baptist will prepare the way, listen to this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me, God says. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. John the Baptist was to prepare the way for the Lord. So now that John is dead, but Elijah returns, the one who was the the prefigurement of John the Baptist, he reminds them that John was to show the way for the Lord. You see now the connection with the transfiguration, don't you? That just as the transfiguration confirmed Jesus' identity as the glorious Lord, so Elijah's presence on that mountain in a further way confirms the identity of Jesus as God. For God was the one for whom John was preparing the way. And Elijah is a figure of John. What comfort this would be again to the disciples as they see right before them Elijah, but also Moses. Moses, think about Moses. Even more famous in the Old Testament than Elijah is Moses. He did what? He led the people out of bondage to slavery in Egypt. He led them to Mount Sinai where the Lord established once again his covenant relationship, his absolute steadfast love commitment to his people. But when Jesus comes as the new Moses, what will he do? The exact same things. Just as Moses led his people out of bondage to slavery to Egypt, so Christ will lead his people out of bondage to slavery to sin. Just as Moses on Mount Sinai reestablished the covenant that God had made with his people, so Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, does what? Offers up his blood and body as a new covenant, reminding his people that I have not done with you. I have not given up on my people. The promises that I made to your forefathers for generations will continue and they will continue because of me, Jesus says. Moses is a prefigurement of all that Christ came to do. Luke actually tells us a little bit about what Elijah and Moses and Jesus talk about. And Luke in the Greek says that they were discussing Jesus' upcoming exodus. Isn't that interesting, the word that he uses? Now our, our translations often re- render it departure or exit or something like that, but the word literally is exodus. It couldn't be more clear that Jesus was about to have an exodus of his own, that just as Moses led the people through the waters of the, dead, of the Red Sea, the waters that provided salvation to his people in judgment on Egyptians, so Christ and his baptism of fire on the cross will provide salvation for his people. And judgment on his enemies. 
Peter, James, and John can know that salvation is coming and has arrived. They can know that their enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil, all those arrayed against them will be defeated because the new Moses is here. You know, people are actually in that day and age looking for Moses to return. They're actually looking for a prophet like Moses. Do you recall in John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, what do the people exclaim? This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. That was an expectation that came from Moses himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses says, a prophet like me will come after you. He will come from your brothers. It is to you that he shall come, and it is to him that you shall listen. Moses predicted a greater prophet than he was coming, and he told the people of God, it is to him that you shall listen. Does that command sound familiar? It is to him that you shall listen. It's the very thing God says from heaven in our text, isn't it? Did you see it there in verse 7? A cloud overshadowed them. A cloud, just like brightness and whiteness is a symbol of God's glory, so is a cloud in Scripture. And the voice comes out of the cloud and says, What? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Just as Moses predicted a great Savior and prophet to come, and they were to listen to him, so God himself says, you are to listen to him. But it's not merely a prophet of mine, God says. What does he say? My son, my beloved, the one whom I will give for you. Just as Abraham was prepared to give his beloved son on the mountain in Genesis 22, so am I prepared to give my beloved son for you. He could almost put his command in the form of a question. How could you not listen to him? (laughs) You've seen his glory. You've seen his predictions confirmed and affirmed by the presence of these men surrounding him. And all that we need to know about Christ is confirmed in this simple voice from heaven. He is my son. Listen to him. What is true about him and what you are to do in response. His identity, your faith. If he is the Son of God, what must we do but listen to him? But to believe him, to follow after him in a sort of faith that is not merely blind assent, but is reliance and trust and delight in the one who is willing to be sacrificed as the beloved Son of the Father. Friends, as we, as we close, think of all the, think of all the confirmation we've seen in this text this morning. We've seen the glorious shining white presence confirming the glory of Christ. We've seen the confirmation of Jesus' prediction of his resurrection through the coming of John and Moses in the person of Elijah. We've seen a confirmation that Jesus is the king and will bring the kingdom. We've seen a confirmation of John's ministry, the forerunner of God himself. We've seen a confirmation of Elijah as the forerunner of God. The confirmation that the restoration of all things has begun. The confirmation that Christ will have to suffer. The confirmation that he'll though rise again from the dead. That he will return with his angels. The confirmation that he is in fact God. All these confirmations come to a head. This command stressing Jesus' identity. It's like God is saying, if all these things are true, and I've given you a dozen reasons in this text to know that they are, our only response can be to listen and to believe. 
to listen with the ears of faith. It's no wonder that Elijah and Moses disappear in verse 8. I mean, the reality is here, the, the pointers, the forerunners, they can pass away. question for us, though, is how will we respond? We have seen the glory of Christ revealed, revealed to us in this text. Will we, re, will we respond with a, with a heart of faith? One that hears the word of Christ. One calling us to follow after him. To turn away from our sins. To take up our cross and to follow him. Will we take hold of the things of this world? Or will we take hold of the promises of God confirmed in the glorious presence of Christ? Will we follow after him and will we believe in him as our Savior? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you have left us without excuse. All we need to know about our glorious Savior is, is given for us in your word. So we pray that we would hear this word, that just as Christ was revealed to Peter, to James, and to John, so he has been revealed to us. And may we rest upon him in faith. May that faith be a gift from you. May it point to you. May it bring glory to you in our lives and our walk before you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.